This is So What Does Judaism Say About? I'm Rabbi Rick Fox. With me today is the very good husband, Rabbi Mayer Beer, and a delightfully wonderful wife, my wife, Mrs. Rivka Fox. Welcome. Thank you. So, Rabbi Beer, how are you doing? Fantastic. And how are you doing? BH. <laughs> okay. So, we discussed Judaism and the background of marriage and dating, and we got a lot of requests to say, what does Judaism say about the dating process? How one becomes, let's say, eligible, how they, what they can do to, to move themselves towards being someone who is um, a person someone else would want to marry. And for that, we wanted to discuss with you, Rivka. Wonderful. So, Rivka, why don't you um, introduce some of your qualifications for this? Because okay. you're new to the, uh, so, so what does Judaism say world? I'd be happy to. So I am a Shadchan, which is the Hebrew word for a Jewish matchmaker. And I have been setting people up since I was in high school with my first successful Shadach match when I was in 11th grade with my camp counselor and a family friend. And ever since then, I've been at it. Naturally, I'm a connector and I love to connect people, to bring things together, to bring people together. And I've been full-time matchmaking around the clock since the very start of COVID. Okay, amazing. And we got married. So that's also a successful match. Thanks to Tamar. Right. Tamar Rubin, shout we, out. We had a match. We had a matchmaker. So probably well, Fox, you did pretty well for yourself. We try. You yeah. got to marry up. It's yeah. very important. Rivka, you'll talk about that. <laughs> Big aspiration. So how does this work? I mean, we are on the air of a holiday called Tubav, the 15th of the month of Av, which is notably, the Gemara says, is one of the happiest days of the year. I think similar to Yom Kippur, the Zohar, I think, says. And so this is a happy day. People used to get married, get matched and married. Correct, Rabbi Beer? That is correct. So in this, in this vein, Rivka, what's going on in, in, the, in the world today, the Jewish world? We have a mitzvah to get married. Therefore, people have a, uh, uh, another, let's call it, you know, preparing for the mitzvah of how they can prepare themselves and to go through the process in a kosher way, in a healthy way. The kosher means fit, to become fit for marriage. Mm -hmm. So we have so many different things. I think that that's a very loaded question. You can talk about how a person can work on their internals and they can work on being someone who has the right middle character traits. Um, we can talk about getting to know oneself so that one knows who they are and what works best for them, what they need, what they need in marriage to have a successful relationship. Um, we can also talk about just there's the technicalities of how would one connect to find a soulmate? And oftentimes, and most frequently in the firm world that we're in, people will visit shadchans or people that are connectors who can connect them to set them up on dates. Those are technical things. Externals make sure that they're put together and that they are they are presentable. So it's a really loaded question on how does one set oneself up for marriage. Well, I agree it's loaded. Yeah. We all agree. But we have other cultures, and there is matchmaking in other cultures. There's two shows on Netflix right now. One is called The Indian Matchmaker, and then there was a follow-up called The Jewish Matchmaker. But our tradition is ancient. The idea of Judaism and becoming married and being a match for another is an ancient thing. So how does what is Jewish matchmaking? What makes it specifically Jewish? What's that aspect? So there is the 
Torah sources, which Rabbi Beer can chime in about, about what the what the Torah says about a Jewish marriage and what are the earlier Jewish marriages in the Torah. And then there is what are the culturally Jewish ways of doing it and what goes down now in today in 2023 on how the Shadok process works. And we have also historically how it's been done for generations and generations. So how is the modern process work and what makes that specifically to your clients who I presume are, if not predominantly, all Jewish? Yes, so I predominantly focus on the Orthodox singles. I have a large range ranging from what people call very yeshivish and even some Hasidish to very, very modern or people who are not fully Shomer Shabbat and kosher, so are not technically Orthodox. So I have a large, large range and I would say most of them fall into the Orthodox category. And when it comes to compatibility, oh, Rabbi Beer, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to chime in. So, you know, we're kind of going on this path of Jewish cultural dating, the Jewish community practices. Now, the process of kind of going to single bars and meeting people is not something with was not something that most Orthodox people use to find their spouse. Now, obviously, you have those random send next door girl on an airplane type Lot of things off. that always happen. But the typical story of I went to a bar, met a nice girl, met a nice guy doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to me that you have non-Orthodox clients that mm -hmm. still want to go through the more traditional process of being set up by a matchmaker and having that like kind of guidance in the beginning of the dating process with, you know, an in-between, if you will, kind of a, you know, person to set the tone before it like, you know, reaches a, a higher point or, or the relationship becomes stronger. And um, what are your takes like from those people who have done more secular style dating? Like how do they orient themselves or, or what is what is their experience with the kind of more traditional way of dating? Yeah, I'm really happy that you brought that up because I think that very recently this matchmaking has become more relevant than ever. And I think people have been very disenchanted with the world of hookup culture, quick relationships, fleeting f fleeting ideas. I think people are tired of it, especially post-COVID at this point, people are really, really attracted to the idea of commitment, of marriages, of things that are longer lasting. I've even noticed in advertisements for different things, um, including dating apps, saying, find your forever instead of, you know, find someone to have a great time with, um, fill in the blanks. There's a deeper pleasure. There's a deeper There's, pleasure people are seeking. Yeah, so I, I, I see a huge a huge new influx toward that kind of perspective. And I think that the secular world is catching on in many ways to what has been part of the Jewish setup process for, for a really, really long time, which is let's figure out first what makes sense, what makes sense on paper, what information do I need before I meet a person to ascertain, is this a really good shot for me or not? So I can go in head first as a thinking individual and are the things that I'm looking for in a marriage or the, the, all the information that I can gather about the other person first, can I do that? Does it make sense? And then I'll go see if I can go out on a date with them and vibe with them. And 
that's just one aspect of the shidduch dating. Additionally, you have a middle man there who can help the process along middle the way. Woman. Middle a woman. A middle woman. Thank you. Thank you very much. Who can help the process along the way. Some singles rely on this middle woman more than others. Some singles really, really appreciate the feedback after the dates. Many guys especially love that they can not say no directly to their date, but they can just easily tell the matchmaker this isn't for me and continue on their way. Um, many women love the security of not having to give out their phone number to a complete stranger, but have the matchmaker set up the date and be the buffer until they're secure enough in the relationship to give their information. So there are really a lot, a lot of benefits here that people who are not just orthodox are coming to know about and appreciate as well. I like how you're like kind of encapsulating two of the important values or benefits of the traditional matchmaking setup where you both have the, you know, there's something more than just a profile picture that I'm dating, you know, when you swipe left or right mm -hmm. or meeting somebody at a bar whose main attraction is just attraction. And the fact that you're at the same bar, what are the chances, you know, um, where people want to have a depth even before they start dating, like they want to know, you know, that this is such and such type person. These are the values. These are kind of the background of the person and also being able to specifically look for things that are important in a long-term relationship. But also what you mentioned, this idea of there being just technical and practical benefits just in the process of the dating. So there's kind of like the larger scale value system, long-term results. And also just there are certain, you know, things that are more comfortable, certain things that are just easier to navigate when you work with someone. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there is this huge emphasis in the Orthodox religious dating on using the head, gaining as much information as possible and ascertaining if the values line up. But I do want to say, given all that, there is something really, really important um, that that is important to keep in mind with all this, with this setup of Orthodox dating. And that is that we sometimes get caught up in the technicalities and that's a, a girl may come out of her Bisako seminary and you say to her, you know, what are you looking for in a marriage? And she will give you a very specific list of a guy who went to one of these three yeshiva who are learning for three to five years, who come from an Eastern European type family in the tri-state area, um, and the boy will, after his three to five year learning, become a professional. And it's so, so specific that sometimes there is oversight of the very, very important ingredient in marriage, and that is an emotional connection. And given all that, given all the information, what's really, really most important is that these two people can connect on a soul and an emotional level. And that has to be kept in mind at all times, even with this very technical, quote, technical process. I would say that that exists tremendously also in what we're calling secular dating as well. If you are at Penn, and you go to the University of Pennsylvania, that is a small bubble. And then you might be interested in only people that go to, let's say, the top three schools right. with certain types of jobs. There's a certain amount of security people want that come from something called, I don't know, money. And people look for that as a sort of catch-all or baseline before things can start. And you can get overly caught up in that. And I think that, that I, I think that that's pulling a secular value, possibly, into what we're calling Jewish dating. It's also interesting how 
you're bringing up is really part of traditional Jewish dating, going back to early, early sources, where um, people being set up for marriage, arranged marriages, not something that was traditionally done. In fact, the Talmud says that it is incorrect for a man to marry a woman before he meets her personally. And the Talmud says, because the Torah writes, Ve'yaftarecha kamocha. Like, you literally have to love your friend. In this case, it's not just your friend, it's your spouse, like yourself. And without creating ava, without creating love, you're missing one of the key ingredients of marriage. It's not just a business partnership, you know, even with, you know, two parties that kind of can work with each other in a healthy way. It is, at its core, the deepest emotional relationship you have, which is why for all the matchmaking that exists, you still need to date. Right. Right. And and I try and I think this goes for many matchmakers. We try not to take the control or be be the autonomous voice in the process. We want to kind of deflect so that the singles that are dating can find their own voice and we can just be a buffer, a supporter, but not someone who is making decisions or telling people what they need, but trying as much as we can to help the person hear their own voice. When I talk, I try as much as I can to reflect what the single is saying, to not push in any direction, which I think is really important. I'm not the one who is going to have the response. I'm not going to be the person who will be taking responsibility, who will be with the person living with the guy or girl, it's going to be the two singles that I set up and that's their decisions to make. And something that matchmakers try to be very mindful of is not taking on any of that kind of responsibility. That's not our place. It's also interesting historically, like, you know, people would think mistakenly so that women 1500 years ago, 2000 years ago in the you know times of the Talmud were told who to marry. And in the sense that, you know, people have this, you know, mistaken concept that Judaism controlled women to the point that this is who you were going to marry. And the Talmud says that it's forbidden for a woman to get married and it's forbidden for her family to control it until she says, wrote something, I want to marry this person. So the idea is not just, you know, like that male empowerment, like the man has to be happy with it, but it's a relationship. Absolutely. There's, there's two parties there. And uh, this is not just a modern value where we need both the guy and the girl to not just agree, but to want it. And wanting is an emotional reaction. Right. It's almost like the rest of the world's catching up to this idea. You know, when you see like the Indian matchmaker or whatever is coming in, like this is something mm-hmm. that, that that is facilitating, like you're right. saying, Rabbi Beer, to, to, to foster love and care, which I think, like Rifka, what you were saying beautifully, deflecting things, making, making non-issues non-issues, as opposed to making non-issues into issues that can be a barrier between two people who ultimately should continue to date. You know, what does that look like, by the way? When, when, when should someone say yes or continue and when should they say no and how, how, obviously you, you don't tell people what to do but i'm sure there are there are times or different uh different aspects where you say no that that's a red flag that's a red flag or that's not a red flag how do you, how do you handle that and what would you say is is that process like for you or when do you intervene because i'm sure you have some influence over the process <laughs> so well, sometimes I do have influence. Sometimes I'd like to have influence and I don't. And I, I just see train wrecks happen. It's not something that I can fully control. So the, the most important and the goal is for people to feel like they have a comfort level and a compatibility with one another um, and that people feel that they, 
that they are safe in a relationship, that they understand each other, that they get each other, they enjoy each other's company, they have productive conversation, they can grow together, they have similar values and goals. And that's what I like to see and that's what we want to see as ingredients in a relationship that's forming in a healthy way. Um, in terms of relationships that I see as red flags or concerning or when I feel like I need to tell a single, look, this doesn't sound very good. I usually feel very, very hesitant to tell a single, break it off. That's definitely a decision that that single needs to make and only they will be living their lives. I will try and I deal with so many singles that I don't know. Many of them I don't know personally or I don't personally meaning on a very, very deep level or having known them for a long time. Um, or many of them I haven't even met in person. So I often will say you should speak to a mentor who knows you really well or a rabbi, or perhaps if you don't have a mentor, you can go to a therapist or a mentor together with the person that you're dating. But I try not to step into shoes that don't, that into a position that is, that I'm not an expert at. Um, in terms of specific examples of, relationship problems or red flags, I would say is when one feels that they are being disrespected or violated or not understood and there's frustration. And this is, and this is not physical. All, no. all, everything you're describing, something very clear is non-physical. Non-physical. Right. Non-physical. And That's part of the matchmaking process. This is non-physical right, dating. Right. And people are so, so different. I just want to say that my values, I cannot put on to other people and I'll have, you know, a, a woman feel violated emotionally because a guy did not drive her home after the date and another person wouldn't blink twice and her relationship is moving along so nicely and the guy never brings her home after a date. So it has a lot to do with a person's values and expectations from where they were brought up and from their upbringing. Um, then there are, of course, objective red flags. And I would say if someone is being mistreated or doesn't feel that they are a part of the relationship, there are sometimes people who the relation they can completely consume the relationship and they are there's no room for another in the relationship and the other person let's say the girl or the guy feel very very stifled and that's something that I definitely see a lot how do you intervene in that case and and are there mentors or do you see a lack of mentorship do you see a lack of guidance do you see people overextending their own you know their own thoughts or their own experiences do you see them under influencing it I think there are so many, there are so many different aspects to the question that you just asked. I think that there are, one is there are enough therapists, rabbis, teachers out there, but there are some people who have a, uh, a comfortability with going and seeking out help and speaking things out. And some people that feel very, very uncomfortable with that. Um, and I also think that even when there are these red flags and there are difficulties and challenges in the relationships, there are people who don't see it and there are people that are okay with it and will want that kind of a relationship because 
there are different things going on in their subconscious. And then you have couples who have a healthy relationship or they're dating someone who's kind, who's healthy, who has great values, things line up well, and they're itching for the drama and they just say they're not having fun, they're not attracted. Um, so it, it's really super, super complex. It's so funny because so much of our relationships are are built on our own previous experiences as children or previous relationships that we've had with friends or other significant others. So like I remember hearing a story. There's a newlywed couple and it's the woman's first birthday after their marriage. And the guy comes home with a kitchen gadget for his new wife. It's a, you know, coffee grinder with a built-in FM radio and a microwave, you know, and a, you know, a, you know, an iRobot, you know, floor mopper. And his wife is like aghast. Like, how could you buy me a kitchen gift, a kitchen gadget as a birthday present? And why'd that happen? Because his mother liked kitchen gadgets and his father bought his mother kitchen gadgets and he thought it'd be a really nice present. He made a mistake. It will clearly never happen again because it wasn't done out of malicious control. He just made a mistake. So you have things in relationships that will not repeat themselves. The second birthday, I'm sure, was a nice piece of jewelry or, or whatever it is that she actually liked. Sometimes things repeat themselves. <laughs> but the, 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 the key to seeing when they're you know, going to be repetitive problem and they're kind of like either an immaturity or a lack of awareness that won't repeat itself is something which a lot of people, particularly ones that haven't had a healthy marriage previously because they're trying to get married for the first time, don't know how to ascertain which is which. Right. And, and people like have this problem when they're dating, like your example of he didn't drive me home for a date because he didn't know he wouldn't do that. If he knew it's very simple to make somebody aware of something when once they're aware of it, they won't repeat it. But if they're a controlling person, they don't know how to give a person space in a relationship because they, for example, are a spoiled child that never had to make room for other people, never had to accommodate other people's emotions. That's not something you can teach people easily. Right. That's or a painful, if, hard process, even if they're willing to go through the, you know, the necessary right. steps to learn. Or if their dad growing up, the respected patriarch of their family is a controlling person and they never had the objective view that this is off, unhealthy, not good. Or even if they do, it's still, it still is this boy's role model. So I think that brings in just the importance of having awareness as to what were the patterns in our families of origin. How, what was the dynamic in our parents' relationship? Another huge part is what is our attachment style? And I think attachment style is huge. Attachment style is a theory by Ainsworth and Bowlby about our earliest relationships and our earliest relationships as an infant determine our worldview in terms of relationships. Do we feel safe and secure? Is the world a safe place? Can I trust people? Can I not trust people? Do I feel that people are out to get me, that people are bad, that people are mean. Do I have to avoid people? And these are all things that are in the subconscious and have to do with our earlier relationships. And it doesn't mean that parents are good or bad. Most of us will say our parents are all great people. This attachment has to do with things that might be out of the scope of people's conscious reality. For example, a baby's 
crying style and 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 needs aren't being met properly by the mother who's trying her best but doesn't understand what the baby's cries are and she has other children that developed in a secure way but this baby for whatever reason has maybe what we call an insecure attachment style because he or she was not having his needs met as a baby and therefore progressed through life thinking that people cannot meet their needs and sometimes people are there for them, sometimes they're not. And as a grown-up, this would present as a young adult who might be really concerned about, does my date like me? Do they not like me? How am I, how am I doing? Um, I think I like this person, but I'm not sure. Scared, nervous, anxious energy. Um, we then will see a baby who develops and it could even be in the same family with a secure attachment and that has to do with the fit between the caregiver and the baby and the person with the secure attachment is very often not scared of intimacy able to connect really well able to support a partner great at 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 de-escalating conflict and then we have the third important attachment styles avoidant attachment and these are children who feel that the world isn't safe and they are scared of intimacy so bringing this back to what rabbi beer was saying about let's say a controlling father and seeing certain role models and patterns in our family of origin the attachment style additionally is a huge piece of energy in the relationship arena that's happening on the subconscious level so we'll have singles go out who are distancing themselves from all eligible prospects without knowing that they have an avoidance style and they really need to work out being aware of what they're being aware of their avoidance style working that out and they're they're attachment styles can change or it can be tweaked and they can also find out which attachment styles work best with them. So it's really, really important to be aware of this. And, and I'll just tell you a really like what, like a really, I, I guess, toxic relationship style that often happens is when the anxious attachment style person is with an avoidant attachment style because those people are not going to have their needs met in a relationship. So someone who has an anxious attachment style and is aware will seek out a partner who has a secure attachment style, not someone who can't fulfill their needs. I remember reading a, an interesting uh, study done in the Soviet Union. At a certain point, I don't know where in the Soviet Union this took place, the government decided that children under the age of maybe it was 18 months or, or two years don't have emotional needs. So they, the government who was responsible for the orphans in that region um, decided that the babies would just be physically cared for, like in factory style orphanages. And when they were at whatever point when the child is developing noticeable emotional attachments, 18 months, 20 months, 24 months, whatever it was, they would then send them to foster families. So these kids basically lived in cribs for the first year and a half, two years of their life before they were given human connections. And they did a study on these children when they were older and their emotional, um, you know, their emotional and social skills were totally off. Like very, very obviously so because they had failure so to thrive. Yeah. So much of our emotions are actually rooted with when we're three months old, six months right. old, nine months old, yeah. when, you know, like kind of our, our biological urges and, and, you know, 
to, to help a crying baby to, to, you know, that skin to skin contact that, you know, we like to clutch small children and comfort them in that way is actually teaching children the very, very foundations of emotional mm-hmm. relationships. And to your point, the, like kind of when you when people have that in an incomplete way, it will manifest itself when they're trying to develop strong relationships. Mm-hmm. In ways that their friends might not notice mm-hmm. because their friends are not a spouse. Now, mm-hmm. when, when Israel, you know, and Israel and Judaism are different, we've discussed that many, many times. But when communist Israel, when in the early days of the state, they they had this process also, but it was the opposite. The children lived with their parents till two or three, then they moved them into the children's homes on the on the communist kibbutzim. So I'd be curious to see how those children's attachments, which probably were also awful. Uh, compared to the Soviet Union's communist, which was the opposite, which was in cribs until two or three years old. Neither one of them recommended. Mm-hmm. Neither one of them recommended. And, uh, you know... The old-fashioned family model just seems to work. <laughs> and I think that's part of, you know, we were talking about what makes Jewish dating Jewish. And I think it's this focus on family. It's the focus on trying to build something together. Mm-hmm. It's the focus on, it's not my, me and my needs. It's the focus on how can we complete each other and become a family unit, knowing that we're going to bring children into the world. And as my rabbis used to tell me, your kids are going to be as messed up as you are when you get married, when you have children. And if it's coming from a place of weakness, a place of insecurity, then for sure we have to be, it's going to be, you probably pick this up in, in, the, in your clients. Like it, it's a scary thought to think about if people are continuing to seek, let's call it mentorship, guidance, help to, to work on themselves because everything can be worked on and fixed up. I doubt there's many people in the world who cannot get better. That's not a very Jewish idea. People can mm-hmm. change, they can grow. Mm-hmm. And, um, do you have any, you know, any advice for seeking out? How do you get to know yourself? Maybe we'll end with this for today. Maybe we'll pick this up another time with another aspect of Jewish dating. But for today, what would you tell everybody as they go out there and say, okay, that was interesting. What can I do today, tomorrow, the next day to prepare myself to become, I don't want to say eligible. I want to say fit, kosher. Kosher means fit. I'm fit for, to be married. I'm a healthy person. What would you be your first recommendation be? Maybe we'll end with that. So I think that, a really, really important, a really, really important preface to building a relationship and to working on a, a long-lasting relationship and hopefully a marriage would be to become more aware of our subconscious, to be more conscious and intentional instead of being reactive. So that would mean asking ourselves things like, why do I want this in a relationship why do I feel uncomfortable with this person? Have I had a similar experience with someone who's like this person before? And really, really trying to bring things to the conscious level so that we can choose a spouse and build a relationship that is not just a response to things that have happened in our childhood or things that are going on on an emotional level that we're not aware of, but bringing it to the awareness level so that we are really self-directing our process and conscious of our decisions and 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 making decisions that are in our best interest that's beautiful Rabir, you want to add anything before we head off yeah I'm, I'm gonna just build on that because i think the point i'm making is really just an extension of your point uh there's a line on the hummus that says when a person gets married he abandons his parents so you abandon your father and your mother and one of that one of the meanings i think behind that abandonment is our relationship with our parents is primarily that of taking. You know, certainly there are adult children that give to their parents and care for their parents, but that's really an inverse of the natural parents giving to the child. 
as a spouse and as a parent, not every marriage has children. People can marry when they're older. Um, but just a very basic marriage is something where you have to be in a position where you are mostly giving. And what you get out of it is whatever you invest into it. So certainly if you're not getting a return on your investment, that might be a terrible relationship. But your active role in the marriage is to give, to give emotionally, to be there for someone, to provide for whatever it is that your partner needs. To both partners, by the way, men and women. For sure. Yeah, yeah. That's not a, that's not a you know, single gender outlook. And you need to transition from being a child to being an adult. And one of those things of being an adult is to be there for someone else, mm-hmm. whatever it is that they need. And if you don't know yourself, you're not comfortable with, with yourself, how are you going to make that transition? Mm-hmm. If you don't know who you are, what it is that you need in a relationship... So you think all it is is just going out to lunch dates on the French Riviera? Like, there's a little more to it than Mm -hmm. that. Well said. There's a a, uh, a line that was a a well-known yeshiva teacher in the 70s and 80s whose name was Remendel Kaplan. And he used to tell, like, these, you know, overly romantic students of his that, you know, he used to go over them and be like, you know what your wife is going to be like? Exactly like your mother. And the relationship that you have with your mother is, you know, it's hopefully it one of the most beautiful relationships you have, but it's not just going to the opera. It's also your mother. You know, there's that element, the kind of the, like the, every, the day-to-day living, the, just the normative drudgery, if you will, of just paying the bills and cleaning the house and that kind of stuff. And you have to see that that's there also. There's the giving. There's the kind of unromantic, just normal living that's part of a marriage. And that's a shift from like that childlike Cinderella version of like riding off into the sunset which mm-hmm. hopefully should happen sometimes too. Mm-hmm. White horses are great. But all those like transitions need a maturity that is fundamentally rooted in your point, which is knowing who you are. How are you going to mature and develop if you don't know who you are? And Beautiful. I think and I think that's the process of what we call Jewish dating. I'm ready, willing, and able to grow with somebody else. It's been a pleasure being married to you, Rifka, for 11 years. Well, I think you. And I'm looking forward to the next 100 years together and then into infinity. And, Amazing. And please don't give kitchen gadgets for birthday presents. I, I, did I ever give a kitchen gadget for birthday? Mm. <laughs> they will. Yeah, we, 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 we need that in the <laughs> Click exit music. <laughs>